I've titled this lesson, When Others Draw Near. People draw near to us many ways in different forms and for different reasons during our life and during the day. And we're going to see that in the life of Isaac in this passage. So I want to start off looking at when the Philistines draw near, and that's in verses 18 to 23. So Genesis 26, starting with verse 18. And Isaac dug again the wells of water, <coughs> which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. <coughs> he called them by the names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley, and they found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, This water is ours. So he called the name of that well Essek, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one too. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well. They did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. <clears throat> you may recall from the earlier part of this chapter that Isaac had settled in the valley that is near the town of Gerar, close enough to make use of the wells that Abraham had dug back in the day. He would reopen those wells because the Philistines had stopped them up. And we went into that a little bit detail last week. Isaac, when he reopened the wells, he called them by the same names that Abraham had called them. This, I believe, was in Isaac's mind just to maintain the continuity between the provision of water and his father Abraham. Because the blessings would flow through Abraham to his offspring. And I think in Isaac's mind, keeping the same names keeps that in front of him. That's my perspective. But Isaac also dug a new well in the valley where he was, where he had settled. One that had running water. And is the, the word, the Hebrew word behind running water conveys the idea of being alive. Now, it may be a type of the living water that we read about in John 4. That's speculation, but there's something different about this well. The water's running. It's alive. It's not just a standing pool. But the envious Philistines came back. Now, they drew near to Isaac, claiming the living well belonged to them. So he called it Essek, which means strife. His men dug another well, and the Philistines claimed that one as well. And Isaac called it opposition to denote the continued conflict with Abimelech's herdsmen. It's as if it were written, in this world you will have tribulation. But we know that's written, and it also says in that passage, these things I have spoken to you. That in me you will have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So it's not just that the saints are going to have trouble in the world. It's that we can have peace in the midst of that trouble. 
Even when you're opposed proclaiming the gospel in San Antonio, you can have peace in the midst of that. Even though we're ailing physically, emotionally, be of good cheer. Christ has overcome sin and death and the world. This is how Isaac was able to respond the way he did. Again, just like last week, he didn't respond to the Philistine herdsmen in anger. In our passage here, when they come and they they steal his property, that's ours, what does he do? He removes himself from the conflict. He displays a godly, honorable attitude. He moved away from strife and opposition, the two wells, And another well was dug, and the Philistines did not come after this one. And he calls this one the Hebrew, whatever I said, I re, yeah, that, means open spaces. It's a term that means wide open. It's as if God gave him space to settle his clan in, away from the strife and the opposition of the Philistine herdsmen. And he was honoring God, putting a name on that well that reminded him of what God had provided. He sees in all these things coming from the hand of God, including the very space that he lived. Griffith Thomas Michael Morales uh, recommended this commentary to me. Griffith Thomas observed, quote, Let us mark carefully these four stages in the patriarch's restored life. First comes the altar with its thought of consecration. Then prayer with its consciousness of need. Then the tent with its witness to home. And then comes the well with its testimony to daily life and needs, end quote. See, the order of these things... Because it says here in our text, he moved from there and dug another well. He called its name Rehoboth, and he said, The Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful. He sees all of these things as coming from God, and the order in which they occur isn't some random occurrence. It is ordered to show God first, And God last, the Alpha and the Omega. Even over temporal things, we must see that nothing just popped up in our lives. Let's move on to verses 23 through 25. The Lord draws near. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. And you can see that the commentary from Griffith Thomas that I just read applies to this passage, not the previous one. But after the conflict at the well... Isaac removes himself to Beersheba, the place where he lived as a child under his father's care. Beersheba was the place where Abraham planted a tree and he worshipped God. After he had a conflict with another Abimelech over water wells. Flip backwards a little bit to Genesis 21. 
Let's take a quick look at this. Genesis 21, starting in verse 22. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Pekol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you dwell. And Abraham said, I will swear. Conflict over a well. Conflict, hostility between parties And you have, as we will see, the same names on the Philistine side. The king has the same name. The commander of the armies have the same name. They're arguing over wells that had the same name. Yahweh appears to Isaac, drawing near to him and speaking to him as a father speaks to a son. And this is the first time in Scripture we have the term the God of Abraham. It's a common term now. It's a common term during Moses' time. Common term during the Samaritan era. Shows up here first. Yahweh confirming to Isaac that even the temporal blessings given Abraham come from him. And he is the same God that spoke to Isaac's father. And it happens in a familiar place. And the God of all creation refers to himself in this way as a reminder that he is the faithful one calling to mind the covenant that we had, that he had with Abraham and renewing that through Isaac for Abraham's sake. The text said, I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. Everything in the redemptive plan that Christ fulfilled goes back to Abraham. This is why it's in the New Testament. We're called children of Abraham according to the promise. Abraham's sake. That's where the promise originated with the specifics that would lead us to the Redeemer. Now, this... This attitude towards God, or towards Abraham, Isaac rather, by God, it's the same loving provision that you know in Luke 12.32 where the Lord said, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See, God pleasures in giving His children good things. And just as everything that was promised is going to flow through Isaac and his children, the children of promise, the kingdom of God is given to those same people. And it is the Father's good pleasure. See, all of this reinforces that there is this one God who is above all things and before all things, and he's got this redemptive plan working out in Scripture that cannot be hindered or overthrown by Philistine herdsmen or anybody else. The greatest gift that God gives us is redemption itself. And that secures eternity for us. We sang out of John 10, nobody can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Nobody is greater than the Father. 
The Father and I, Jesus said, are one, and nobody can snatch us out of his hand. That's security. Isaac built an altar, and he worshipped God, and he pitched his tent, and he dug a well. In this day, God's people worshipped and dug wells. You live in a desert climate. Water's a precious commodity. You remember when Hagar was sent away. They didn't have any water, and they were going to die until God showed them water. When you get water in this era, in this climate... If you're a child of God, you thank God for it. So he, he built an altar and he dug a well and he sees this as a testimony of God's faithfulness. And he gives thanks to God for this precious commodity. In the days of drought, farmers cry out for rain, even in the 21st century. We recognize that if God doesn't send rain, we're not going to have crops. We ought to be thankful to God even for that natural occurrence that he promised would continue until the end of the age. This reminds me from something that Paul said. Every, every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. That's in First Timothy chapter 4. And the point is, It is pleasing to God our Father for us to be ever thankful for the blessings He gives and not to slip into a heathen mindset of taking things for granted or claiming that they were provided by Mother Nature or the universe. The universe doesn't have a mind. There are people that talk about, well, the universe apparently didn't want me to do this. Those are people who are suppressing their knowledge of truth by their unrighteousness. Because there is a God and he guides all things and he is known to all men. God himself has drawn near to his own and provided that which cannot come from anyone else. He provided open spaces and peace and water to Isaac. And he provides to us the open space that we have amongst one another, the peace that we have with God the Father and one another, and living water that satisfies our soul. And the divine righteousness that comes from the King of Kings. These things... It's the God, it's the, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you all the kingdom. That's all, that's what all these things come together in. And when God draws near to His people, it is to do good to them, as He did to Isaac. So let's move on and look at the next passage, 26 through 33. Abimelech draws near to Isaac. Then, after these things, then Abimelech came near to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, Ahuzath, one of his friends, and Pekol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, 
that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath to one another. And Isaac sent them away and they departed in peace. And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. And so he called it Sheba. And therefore, the name of this city is Beersheba to this day. See, there's a few things going on here. One, Isaac has been working hard and God has prospered him. And the results have not been unnoticed by the king's closest advisors. And they go tell the king about it. Now, it's interesting. They say, um, let us make a covenant with you, you that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you and not done anything to you but good. Remember last week, God prospered Isaac and he had lots of riches and lots of people and lots of flocks. And the king came to him and said, you are too powerful for us. I want you to go away. And then they came and they, the king threatened death to anybody that caused any harm to Isaac or, or Rebekah. Because of the incident with Rebecca that presented his sister, he said he would put to death anybody that harmed him. And then they fill up the wells, which is harm, and they, they send him away. And, and now he comes back to him, this pagan king comes back to Isaac and says, ah, we don't want you to do us any harm. He's still afraid of Isaac. He's afraid of what he sees God has done through Isaac. And he says, we have not touched you and we have not done you anything but good. We sent you away in peace. Yeah, we just followed after you and we threw dirt down your wells. You see how natural man will always distort his record of what happened to put himself in the best light? Do you see that God doesn't do that with his people in his word? We can identify with these people that have these sinful proclivities and these bad personality traits because God wants us to know that it is him, not the people, that is the cause of any good any of us should do. So you recall when I read from chapter 21, you had a previous Abimelech who sued for peace with Abraham and the commander of the Philistine army with the same name as here in chapter 26. John Gill said it's probable that this Abimelech might be the son of that Abimelech that lived in the times of Abraham. And so this Phicol might be the son of him that lived back then and who succeeded his father in the office, although some think that this is the name of the of an office signifying the mouth of all by whom the addresses of the people were made to the king, end quote. So we don't even know. See, two men named Abimelech, two men named Phicol that commanded the army a hundred years apart. Here's the thing. History at large doesn't give us as much detail as we would like. We want to know all the ins and outs and details and why everything happened. History that men write doesn't give us that much detail. And history provided by God oftentimes does not. 
we must learn to be content with not knowing what God has not pleased to reveal to us. So Isaac had removed himself from the king's city and he went back to where his father had lived. He became wealthy like his father was. And then Abimelech drew near. And notice Isaac's perception. Abimelech hated him and drove him away. But see, God had told Isaac, don't stay in the city, move out to the valley. God was using Abimelech to drive Isaac to where God wanted Isaac. The Philistine king recognizes that God has been with Isaac. You are now blessed of the Lord. And he had seen the hand of God on Isaac. And he sued for peace. And they had a feast. And they swore an oath. One commentator said, Isaac's productivity as a farmer is the highest recorded in Scripture. Nobody was as prosperous over a short period of time as Isaac was. I don't know how you measure that. But that's what one guy said. Certainly he was wealthy. And the Philistine king, who had lots of wealth, thought he was wealthy and more powerful than him, the king. Just because someone recognizes God's hand on you doesn't mean that they are God's children. The Philistine king, no record in Scripture that he ever was one of God's children. But he testified, God has blessed you. God has prospered you. Oftentimes, they may be giving, may have been given just enough light to know that it makes sense to sue for peace. Bullies want to make peace with those that can put them down. In this scene, with Abimelech suing for peace, it, it may actually be source material for one of Solomon's Proverbs, where he said in 16.7, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Isaac's behavior is also foundational to what we read from Paul's pen in Romans 12.18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Isaac didn't go make war when he could have. Didn't seek restitution by his own hand. It's almost as if he read somewhere, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Ron Crisp observed, God's blessing upon Isaac was so visible that the Philistines began to fear. They wished to make a covenant of peace with him for their own safety. Likewise, today, we may so live that the world sees that God is with us. End quote. And it has fact what Jesus said in, in Matthew. Let your love be shown so that the world will know. The world will know that you are my disciples for the love that you have by, for one another. Hmm. It was this day when Isaac and Abimelech made peace and they celebrated with a feast that his servants told him that the well they had dug was productive. The name of this place, Sheba, means well of the oath. 
And as did his father, Isaac structured his life to keep Yahweh's name in front of him, naming places to commemorate God's faithfulness and to remind him of that. Every time he would go to that well to draw water, the name of that well, Sheba, would be in his mind and he would be reminded. There was an oath made this day that God vindicated me in front of the pagan king. God is faithful. That's what was behind Isaac here, I believe. We need to do things in our own lives to remind us of God's faithfulness. We don't have to go around naming places. You know, that's not a magic formula. But we do need to put things in front of our eyes that remind us of God's faithfulness towards us. Let's look at the last passage in our text here. Three verses, 34 through 35, as Esau draws near to Isaac. When Esau was 40 years old, he took wives as wives, Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Basemath, I'm not pronouncing that right, I don't think, but that's how it looks to me. Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. He takes two women from the Hittites as wives, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Now, this seems totally random. You're reading this chapter and it's all about Isaac and how God prospers him and how the pagans bow down to him. And then Esau gets married to two Hittites and they cause grief to Isaac and Rebekah. But we know nothing's random. Randomness doesn't even exist in math. You know, they talk about random number generators. There's no such thing. There's even an order to the random number generators that they use in computers. Randomness is an idea denies the existence of a sovereign. What we learn from these three verses is that Esau married at the same age as his father did, 40 years old, but that's not what's important. Esau took wives from pagan nations, which Abraham forbid Isaac to do. Gil said that Esau was likely aware of his grandfather's wishes, and Gil intimates that Esau probably took these Hittite women as wives on purpose, in keeping with his character. He says the marriage of them itself was a trouble to them, Isaac and Rebekah, it being contrary to their will that any of their children should marry with the Canaanites and those the worst of them, the Hittites. The women he took for wives were very disagreeable on all accounts, partly because of their religion being idolaters and partly by reason of their temper and behavior being proud, haughty and disobedient. Esau and his wives lived fairly close to Isaac because they drew near to him and they made life bitter for him and his wife. And this aligns with Gil's objective that Esau was malicious in choosing Hittite women as wives. Scripture leaves us with this sobering commentary about Esau in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verses 14 to 17. We get this instruction and then a warning. 
Pursue peace with all people, sounds familiar, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. This is what was going on between Esau and Isaac. And by this many became defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau was Isaac's favorite son. Michael emphasized that a few weeks ago. Rebecca liked Isaac. He was a farmer. He was a homebody, made good stew. Esau liked to hunt, liked to go out, liked to shoot. Esau was not God's chosen son. The older will serve the younger, it was said when they were in Rebekah's belly. Esau did not respond favorably in love to Isaac or to the Lord. Esau lived his life with his fist raised against God. And the short narrative about Esau and his role in Isaac's life also serves as an introduction to what comes to us in chapter 27. Esau's brother Jacob brings grief to Esau's mind as the heel grabber steals Esau's blessing. That's coming up. So Esau, get ready for part two. So what's the conclusion? What's the application of this, these three sections? When people draw near to you, as we saw in our passage, there may be several different reasons that they come close and draw near and want to be your friend. They may desire something from you or they may desire to give you something. Might be envy, as in the case of the Philistine herdsman. Might be respect and honor, as in the case of Abimelech. If someone comes to you being envious of you, Bear in mind that you're not responsible for their envy. You're not responsible for the ugly way they may talk and act. You're not responsible for what they think. And bear in mind that we're not taught to dress or walk or live in such a way as to draw attention to ourselves. You don't want to be aggressive in the way you behave or in the way you dress so as to draw attention to yourself. If it possible, live with peace with all people. And in Peter's instruction in 1 Peter 3 about women, which also I think applies in concept to men, alludes to the danger of setting up to be the object of envy intentionally or otherwise. And James touches on this in his letter too, warning us not to be swayed by fancy clothes. Fancy clothes aren't bad. Fancy clothes aren't good. They're a personal preference. The problem with fancy clothes, the problem with fancy cars, the problem with all the stuff of the world is when people envy others, when they get jealous because they don't have what you do. 
So while we're not responsible for what others think, say, or do, we are responsible to be wise and gentle, not giving offense, not being ostentatious in how we present ourselves. Now, if somebody comes to you to honor you, it's it's not your place to assign motive to the other person. See, Isaac fell into this. When Abimelech came to him, he says, you hate me. Well, we don't know if Abimelech hated him. We know Abimelech feared him. And Abimelech feared what he saw God doing through him. No evidence that he hated him might have. But it's not our role to assign motive. We don't know the motives of others. We should accept honor with humility, not pride, knowing that it is the Spirit of God working in us to do anything good. Griffith Thomas again observed, as we seek, as we cease to regard self and concentrate attention upon others, we find our own character becoming stronger as it becomes more unselfish. And with that is quickly added influence over others and a beautiful recommendation of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that's why Paul said that when he is weak, then God is strong. His strength is revealed in my weakness. Because then people don't see man's strength. And they don't give glory to man for his wit, his wisdom, his skill, or his strength. But in our weakness, they can more clearly see it is God working through us. This should be our goal, not heaping up praise and honor for self, but seeking to build up one another so that Christ would be honored and seen more clearly among us. And a third, a third possibility here in this passage is when God himself draws near. And in our passage, he drew near to one of his own children. And when he does that, it is, as I said a minute ago, to do good for his children. In Isaac's case, as in Abraham's case, Yahweh prospered them in wealth and reminders of his faithfulness. In our day, God gives us his complete written record. We don't need to go to try to go beyond what he's provided. He blesses us with temporal things for which we should be thankful, because all things are clean if accepted with thanksgiving. But he has given us what is better. He has given us his spirit to illuminate our understanding of his word. And he has given us one another to encourage us, exhort us, and lead us to love each other as we ought. Here's how one song reminds me of what God has done for each of us whom he has called to himself. And we sang this before. And the, the bridge of this song says, of what wondrous love is this? Though I raise my clenched fist, he opened up my hand to receive his gift. And what wondrous love is here that God immortal has drawn near and shed his blood to close the rift. This unbroachable, unimaginably wide and deep rift between sinners and holy God. He has come near and shed his blood to make a way for us. God may also draw near to those who are not his children. And so doing, he may be bringing judgment or he may be providing a witness of himself. We see this in Genesis 20 where the Lord appeared to Abimelech in a dream after he had taken Abraham's sister. 
Let's look real quick at Genesis 20, just a few pages back. Genesis 20, starting in verse 3. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Uh, But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. There's nothing in Scripture to indicate that God saved this pagan king, but he certainly appeared to him, and he did keep him from sinning against him. Now, see, certainly if he had lain with Sarah, he would have been sinning against Abraham. But God's message to the king is, I kept you sinning against me. This is what makes sin so exceedingly wicked. It's not just that we offend one another. It is that we are an offense to God. This is what David realized in Psalm 51. You know this psalm. It's very well known by many people. Psalm 51 and the first few verses. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. This is a child of God praising God for who he is. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me against you. You only Have I sinned and done this evil in your sight? He wrote this after the incident with Bathsheba. He killed her husband. He sinned against these people. And he says, against you only have I sinned. Because the problem with sin at its core is that it is against God. Because see, if the problem was just between you and me, we could have a feast We could make a covenant and we could come to terms and just let bygones be bygones. But since sin is against God himself, he must be the one who sets the term for restitution and reconciliation. Say not to your soul, peace, peace, when there is no peace with God. None of us can make peace with God on our terms. For all of us has sinned in Adam and in ourselves. And the days of Moses, the high priest had to make a sin offering for himself before he could do so for the people. And he did this every year because the blood of goats and rams only covered sin for a season. And that's what they had to do every season. This foreshadowed 
our need for a sinless priest to make a one-time sacrifice to bring us peace with the Father. And God Himself must make peace with sinners because He only, as David said, has been sinned against. There's another song I will give you a couple of verses from. In the day when earthly weakness weighs your weary spirit down, all around you seems a burden. All above you seems a frown. God Himself will dry your eyes, dry your tears. God Himself will soothe your fears. In the day when sin oppresses and the battle rages strong, when the victory seems doubtful or triumphant seems the wrong, God Himself will dry your tears. God Himself will soothe your fears. We have friends, we have brothers and sisters who are suffering in ways that we may not understand. God Himself will soothe your fears. No one else can. We, we saying this out of, out of James. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And God Himself will give you peace no matter the storm that life may bring. God Himself will be your refuge in the looming day of judgment. And there is no peace without being found in that strong tower of refuge. God Himself will dry your tears. God Himself will soothe your fears on the day when He returns to judge the nations and gather His people and make all things new, there will be no fear of condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. Because He is our Advocate. He is our Redeemer. He is our Judge. He is our Savior.